Well, one of the things over the years that has helped me with being a family man is something so simple. Simple, and it was confirmed and established um, with Dr. Carson's interpretation of Ephesians chapter 5. And that's the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. It's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's not a command, a hope, or a wish. He didn't say, I want you to be, or he didn't say, I hope that one day you will be. You are the head of the wife. And so it eliminates any thought of, well, one day I'm going to do this, or one day I hope she lets me be the head of the household. No, we are the head of the household. We are leading right now, and we're leading by doing nothing, or we're leading through our wives. And I think that changes everything. It's not a matter of whether we are or we aren't. It's a matter of whether we're doing a good job or a bad job. And so no matter what the circumstance, the, the, the truth is that we are leading right now. We're either a good one or a bad one. Once again, I'd like to begin by reading scripture and we'll turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. We could easily begin a little earlier, but I'm going to begin at verse 21. Ephesians 5:21. And we could go a little later, too, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, but I'm going to end at verse 33. So Ephesians 5:21. To 33. Why? Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. There are few domains, Heavenly Father, in which... Your word is more contested today than in those which touch family and marriage 
and sex. Help us, Lord God, to take our cues, our direction, our instruction from your gracious self-disclosure in Holy Scripture, refusing to submit to the dictates and mandates of our culture. For Jesus' sake, amen. In many ways, marriage is in a lot of trouble. I don't just mean according to divorce rates and the like. There are quite a number of things that have taken place in the last half century or so that have changed the way people talk about these things. One of them, quite frankly, is the pill. Of course, people have sometimes been promiscuous long before the pill was invented. But it's difficult to imagine quite the same percentage of people in the Western world shacking up, as is the case today, if it had not been for the pill. Because now the pill enables you to have sex without the consequences of pregnancy. So that does not mean that an earlier generation was more holy. It just meant that they were more scared. The the, the pill has not taken away uh, or transformed or generated. It has not taken away purity and generated more lust. It it, it has taken away some of the consequences. And And because of this, therefore, there are... There, 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 there is, is more experimentation, more starting out early, more viewing of sex as something casual. I'm old enough, believe it or not, I'm old enough to remember a pop song that went, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together as a horse and carriage. Can you imagine anybody singing that today? Good grief, it sounds antiquated. Well, I'm antiquated, so what do you expect? But you, you, you understand that this is a pretty big culture shift that, 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 that doesn't think that love and marriage is, 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 is tied together as, as producing a baby carriage. And then, of course, there's the rise of internet porn. Again, you didn't have to wait for the internet to get porn. You, you can find ancient stone carvings in the ancient world that are essentially pornographic. But what the internet has done has made porn cheaply available. There is more money made on internet porn today than on hard drugs, alcohol, combined. I am sure, sure as I'm standing here, that there's any number of you in this room that are addicted to porn. And you tell yourself every once in a while that, you know, you're not addicted, you can turn it off anytime you want to, and it's not doing any damage or anything. Oh, give me a break. The worst thing you can do with porn is lie to yourself. And so your vision of women becomes corroded. It's corrupted. It's, it's, it's no longer someone made in the image of God with whom you are in a partnership, a one flesh liaison that reflects something of the glory of the relationship between Christ and the church. When you're watching porn, those aren't the categories you're thinking in.
And in point of fact, porn is a kind of worship. That, that is to say, this becomes God for you. This is the most important thing in your life. Which is why when people really do want to break porn, break the habit of looking at porn, although there are some things that you can do that are practical and negative, such as always putting your computer in a public place or at home your wife has the password for it and therefore it can only be on when she's around. Or There are some things like that that you can do. Or you can use Covenant Eyes or one of the other programs by, by, by which you're, you're checked. Every, every site you go to is checked by two or three other people. Yeah, you can do things like that. Yet ultimately, truly to break the lust for porn, you worship your way into it and you worship your way out. That is to say... You must see Christ as so wonderful and so glorious and so attractive and the gospel as so transforming. You must see the new heavens and the new earth as so wonderful and God's vision of reality is so spectacularly attractive that porn just looks cheap and shoddy and ridiculous in comparison. You're attracted to it because it becomes your God. You worship your way into it. And by the grace of the gospel, you worship your way out as you find that there is a God that laughs at these lesser gods, holds them in derision. That's the power of the gospel. But there are other social phenomena too that we have to come to grips with. For better or for worse, most men in the, ancient, in, in the, in the Western world today, most men are growing up a little later now, there are reasons for this. It's partly because more of us are doing tertiary education. More of us are supported, at least in part, sometimes wholly by our parents, so that when I was growing up, it was very common for a, a kid to be 16, 17, 18 and supporting himself. That, that, that was the way it was. You, you, you had to get a job and, and earn your way. Nowadays, people sometimes don't really get a job that means anything until they're 23, 24, 25. So we're growing up a little later without, without having so many consequences upon us. My dear friend Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a church now which meets in four congregations and draws something like 6,000 or 7,000 people on a Sunday morning, an awful lot of them conversion growth and um, an average age of about 32, 70% of them single. He says that the... Hardest pastoral problem he and his wife face in the young men who get converted in the church. That is, in terms of their lifestyle and what they're doing and what they're thinking about, what it means to bow to Christ and then things have to change in their lives. It has to do, he says, with sex and marriage. You, you point out to some of them, you know... Have you looked at her? I mean, she's a terrific Christian. She's a wonderful woman. She's gracious. She's lovely. Yeah, yeah, but there's no, there's no chemistry. It's, it's almost as if a lot of them are looking over their shoulder all the time, wondering if there's a sexier one coming up behind. And the notion of commitment just dissipates in that kind of atmosphere, doesn't it? About 10 years ago, it's a long time ago, about 10 years ago, I was asked to speak at a Christian medical fellowship convention. I won't tell you where, because you might even know some of the doctors. But anyway, I spoke at this Christian medical fellowship convention. 
And there were maybe three or four hundred doctors and a few nurses there, a few trainee doctors, most of them were qualified. And um, after a day or two of this conference, some of them came up to me sort of quietly, you know, as if they were going to pass me some drugs or something under the table. It was all very hush-hush. And, and I think, we've got to talk to you. And I said, well, okay, talk to me. Well, no, we've got to talk to you in private. Okay, have I done something wrong? No, 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 no. But tomorrow morning at breakfast, a bunch of us have, have, have taken a table in a restaurant, you know, in a, in a private room, and we, we'd like you to, to, to come and talk to us. Okay. So the next morning I went to the restaurant, and sure enough, there was a separate room off to the side. There were 24, 25 doctors, you know, in this little room. And, and we ordered breakfast, and while we were waiting, this is getting desperate, isn't it? I'll just learn to put these things in decent order and clip them down in one fashion or another. The, um, w- w- while, we, while we were talking together, um, <coughs> waiting, I could see that they wanted to say something but didn't know, didn't know quite how to begin it. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm here. You, you asked to see me. Uh, wh- wh- what's the agenda? And they sort of hummed and hawed and looked guilty and... Finally, one of them blurted out, why can't we get married? It's, it's okay, I don't mind. I've, I've pinned it down. I'm probably pretty okay. Thanks. It was thoughtful of you. I said, I beg your pardon. Why can't we get married? Now, you've got to understand, the, the youngest of them was maybe 25. The oldest was pushing 40. And there were 25 of them there. They were bright people. They're doctors. They're on the way to becoming doctors. And, and, and they had decent brains and they had some money and, and they, they, they were moving in a Christian environment and, and going to Christian churches. This was a Christian conference. It wasn't an evangelistic exercise. Did you, did you know? And I said, well, explain what you mean. And as we began to talk, <laughs> these were intellectually bright, big-minded people who were emotional pygmies. They had no idea. They were doctors. They, they had no idea of giving and receiving. It, it, it all centered on them. They had no idea what Christian marriage would look like. They, 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 they had no idea how to love somebody other than themselves. It, it, it was unbelievable. They were emotionally pygmies. And that isn't even rare today. That's, that's common. I, I look around this room and some of you are staring at me not, not cracking a smile or saying anything because you don't want me to look into your soul. <laughs> and others of you, I say something like this and your eyes go down. But some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And in fact, in every period of history, there have been some people that have been miserably cynical about marriage. For example, here's Robert Louis Stevenson. If you're into poetry, you'd know his name. Marriage is a step so grave and decisive that it attracts light-headed, variable, and stupid men by its very awfulness. Well, touch cynical, I would have thought. But, but you always find some voices like that here and there. Moreover, increasingly in the Western world, you find dinks. Double income, no kids. My wife is English. 
She's an identical twin. She's the only one from her extended family who's a Christian. Grace does not necessarily run in the genes. And her sister, with whom she is very, very, very close, and her husband, they're dinks, double income, no kids. They like our kids, but they don't have any of their own. Now they're retired. They took early retirement. They had enough money. They do about six boat cruises a year. I've never done a boat cruise. Mind you, I got kids. <laughs> but it's another way of looking at things, too. And it's part of the characteristic self-focus of the age. I don't want kids. They're, you know, it starts off with dirty diapers, and then it gets, no, 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 no. And then, then it's, it's education costs, and then it's violin lessons, and flute lessons, and football lessons. And, and then, then, it, then it turned teenagers. Good grief, you know? And, and then after that, you know, they get married. It just gets more difficult. When they turn 18, it doesn't mean you stop parenting. It just means you, you, you can do very, do, do very little about it, even when you try. And then, and then, and then they, they will cause some, some difficulties, a wheel will come off somewhere, and, and, and then eventually their grandchildren, and they have some of them have to go back to work and so you end up with the grandchildren and it just it doesn't stop just, I'll, I'll be a dink I'll be a dink <laughs> and then when you're old and crotchety and there's nobody around all by yourself no generation to love you or look after you you've wondered if your very selfishness has guaranteed your self-focus contrast that with a stance that says children are a heritage from the Lord Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. What does it mean to love your neighbor when you can't even love your kids, for crying out loud? Do, 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 do you know? There are so many things in our culture that are diametrically opposed to almost everything the Bible says about family and sex and children and laughter and responsibility, and joys, and sorrows. The, the categories are all shot to pieces. And we can't address these things piecemeal. We, we, we can't say, I'll just fix this a little bit. I'll just, I'll just worry about the pill impact. That's all. Rather, it's a vision thing. It's, it's, it's the way you view yourself and God and family and life and eternity and this life and the life to come and what's important, what's not important. It's a, it's a massive worldview thing. And ultimately, all of it turns around who is God, who's in charge, and how will I be reconciled to him by the gospel that he himself has granted. If you're not a Christian, none of what I'm about to say will make any bit of sense at all. None of it. And if you're a Christian, you can't help but see there is no other responsible way of looking at things than the way I'm going to speak. Now, it would be possible to spend a lot of time running through many, many, many passages. But this is one of the shorter sessions, so I need to try to be brief. I want to say a word about women, first of all. Some of it, I know, is a bit controversial in our culture. But I really don't see any other way of understanding the Word of God. And then I want to say something directly to the men. Verse 21 of chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is often taken to mean something like this. If we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, 
What is at issue here is reciprocal submission. Everybody submits to everybody else. Submit to one another. It's a reciprocal pronoun. So men submit to women, women submit to men, we all submit to one another. In other words, the local church is supposed to be characterized by a kind of humility of mind in which everybody is very, very humble. We all submit to one another. That is a very common way of taking this passage. And in that case, if that's what the passage says, then this is in favor of the position commonly called egalitarianism. That is, there are finally no distinctions in terms of function and role in the home or in the church at all. We are all entirely equal in every respect on every axis because we all submit to one another. Now, although I know some fine people who take that position, it really is bad exegesis. It really is bad interpretation. Let's just back off a bit and see the flow of the argument. In chapter 5, Paul is dealing with a variety of ways in which Christians are to live godly lives, pursuing goodness, righteousness, and truth, to use the language of chapter 5, verse 9. <clears throat> We're to be very careful, verse 15, how to live not as unwise but as wise. We're supposed to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, this sounds, again, like warnings in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The, the, the last days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ are characterized by an awful lot of evil. Don't be surprised by any of this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Not that Spirit, this Spirit. The Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. And then there follows in Greek a number of participles. It doesn't matter what the unit of grammar is, but a number of expressions that fall out of this. Be full of the Spirit, and this is what it looks like. Be full of the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in the context, you see, being filled with the Spirit has consequences in our lives for how we interact with one another, with mutual songs and with thanksgiving to God the Father for everything and with making music with gratitude before the Lord and in this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in other words, whatever we're talking about here, we're talking about life in the Spirit. We're talking about what life in the Spirit looks like. Then the second thing to observe is that the verb for submit, the verb is hupotasso in Greek, is always used, without any exception, anywhere it's used in the ancient Greek world, it's always used for submission in some kind of ordered array. So, for example, um, a sergeant submits to a captain. There's an ordered array. And because of that, um, the submission is never the other way. So already when you use this particular verb for submission, you're thinking ordered array. Do you see? Then the second thing to observe is that one another, the pronoun that is used there, is in the New Testament sometimes reciprocal and sometimes not. It depends on the context. For example, in Revelation 6.4, in one of those symbol-laden descriptions of massive chaos and slaughter. It says that at this time of violence and sin, they killed one another. Is that perfectly reciprocal? So you get 
10 people in the room. Now the vision there is a lot more, but let's say 10 people in a room. If you're going to have perfect reciprocity, they all have to shoot nine guns at once, getting all of the other ones. And each of the 10 has to do that, you see? And then suddenly, bang, and they killed one another. That's perfect reciprocity. But if there's bloody mayhem and they all die, you can still say they killed one another without suggesting that it's perfectly reciprocal. That depends on the context, you see? And if you have a thousand people or a great crowd killing one another because there's destruction, end-time violence, and massive disaffection, and people are killing one another, that is not perfectly reciprocal. Even in the worst cities of the world, in Kabul, they don't kill one another with perfect reciprocity. In other words, that depends on the context. So you have a verb that is suggesting some sort of ordered array, and then... A pronoun, one another, where you've got to decide from the context what is at issue. And then in the following verses, you have four of these ordered arrays. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So in that pattern, wives submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives. Children is the next ordered array. Obey your parents in the Lord. There is submission. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. And then the third and last one is slaves, obey your earthly master. And masters, be generous and open-hearted with your slaves. So in other words, in the ordered arrays that follow, in each case, this is not saying fathers submit to your children as the children submit to you. It just isn't saying that. And to suggest that it does is slightly ridiculous. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. That's, that's understated for just plain nonsense. In other words, in this context, submit to one another's out of reference for Christ really can't mean mutual submission with perfect reciprocity. It doesn't work. And then when you look at passage after passage in the New Testament, you find that in the so-called house tables, that's what they're called, tables of household duties where you talk about what fathers do and mothers do, where you find uh, instruction about what children are supposed to do and husbands and wives and so on. You look at the various house tables in the New Testament of family duties, and without exception, you find things like this. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Or Titus 2, 4, and 5. The older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. 1 Peter 3, 1, 6, and so on. In none of those passages is there any hint of mutual, reciprocal submission. The only passage where you could conceivably take it that way in the entire New Testament is this verse, 521. So that when egalitarians read these sorts of verses right through the house tables of the New Testament, what they do is immediately come back to Ephesians 5.21. Yes, 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 but Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another, that's it, it's perfectly reciprocal. But even in this one passage, it's not perfectly reciprocal. It simply isn't. So then listen to what the text says about wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, right off the bat, you can see that you're dealing with a massive parallelism. Christ and the church 
parallel to husbands and wives. In fact, Christ and the church is nestled into an even larger Old Testament parallelism, Yahweh, God, and Israel. God and his covenant people, now under the New Testament categories, Christ and the church. And this shows up in passages that have nothing to do with marriage directly. Elsewhere, Paul says to the Corinthians, for example, I have betrothed you as a pure virgin to Christ. Do you see? Waiting for the messianic banquet and the marriage supper of the Lamb so that you get some of these sorts of metaphors extended in a variety of ways in the New Testament. Now, we'll come back to this typology in a few minutes, but it's right there on the very surface of the text. There's some sort of parallelism that's going on. The second thing to observe is that with the typology in place, the woman is submit to submit to her husband as she does to Christ and as the church more generally does to Christ. That is not a mutual submission. We do not say the church submits to Christ and Christ submits to the church. Christ gives himself for the church. We'll come to that. Christ loves the church, no doubt, but he doesn't submit to the church, defer to the church. Oh, church, what do you think today? Oh, I don't think it's a very good idea, but if you say so, I'll do it. That's not Christ's relationship to the church. And headship in the New Testament is bound up with certain kind of vested authority. Now, having said that, let me nevertheless say what this submission does not mean. It is not to be confused with certain pathetic stereotypes, groveling, self-pity, unequal pay for equal work, as if God were the author of injustice. It does not warrant her putting up with abuse. If he starts beating her up, she should call the cops and charge him. The passage is not interested in injustice or anything like that. So you must, not, you must not make law out of hard cases. And you must not make theology out of hard cases either. And after all, with the, with the parallel being Christ, Christ does not beat up on the church. So do not try to draw extrapolations here to make silly positions. Moreover, this submission does not deny perfect equality that exists in many realms. Men and women are equally made in the image of God. Men and women are equally justified by grace alone through faith alone. Men and women have equal access to God by trusting in Christ Jesus. Men and women are endued with the Spirit of God. Men and women are born again. Men and women equivalently will appear in resurrection existence on the last day. And many other things. Those things also have to be stressed. Men and women are not so as it were, unequal, that a woman must be considered sort of two-thirds of a man or maybe half a man or something of that order. In that sense, even those who don't call themselves egalitarian ought to be egalitarian on many, many, many fronts. But I'll say more about that in a few moments too. Moreover, number three, like the responsibility laid on the husband, which I'll look at in just a couple more minutes, this responsibility is dramatically opposed to self-interest. 
He's to love her as Christ loved the church. We'll come to that. She's supposed to submit to him. Both are dramatically opposed to self-interest. When it says she is supposed to submit to him in everything, it does not mean that she can't make any decision or offer any advice or do anything at all without running it by him to get his approval because he's the big cheese and she's just the little menial worker. What it means is in every domain. That is to say, it's not the case that she says, okay, I'll submit to you on this particular front, but not on that particular front, any more than the Christian has the right to say to Jesus, okay, you're my Lord on this front, but not on that front. Did you see? What it means is right across the sweep of human existence. Moreover, the analogy is in one sense imperfect for another reason. In the church, our head, the Lord Jesus, is perfect. But no matter what a great husband you are, you are not And it's quite possible for husbands to make disastrous mistakes and be really quite unknowingly, initially, abusive or cruel or condescending or demeaning and and, and have to be challenged by it, by other men, by leaders in the church, by the teaching of the word of God. And it's not too surprising that the women themselves will push back somewhat in that regard too. So, so you must not turn this into a Pollyannish world in which, in, in which the, the, the woman is nothing more than the doormat. It's not that. If you want to read something good in this area that is really quite balanced and poised, the best thing that I've seen recently is the book by Tim and Kathy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. And Kathy herself writes the sixth chapter on women submitting to their husbands. It's pretty balanced, pretty poised. Moreover, another book that might help some of you who are getting into this for the first time. It's only been released in Australia. It's not in North America yet, except a copy or two like the one that I've got that was flown to my door uh, because I wrote a blurb for it. It's by a woman called Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E Smith, called God's Good Design. It's one of the better books on the entire subject and might help some of you who are working through some of these passages. Now, that's some of the background that needs to be said before we take a look at men. Now then, we come to the men. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The thrust of the passage is transparent. God lays on responsibility, God lays on husbands the responsibility so to love our wives that the only suitable analogy to be drawn is the love of Christ for the church. Do you have any idea what a high standard that is? This is a long way from sentimentalism. Christ's love for the church then must be your model first in its self-sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love for the church led him to the cross. He gave himself up for her. And this, far from being something that mitigates headship, is combined with headship. The fact that he gives himself up for her does not mean that therefore he is not the head 
but even in some sense that he has gained the headship precisely by the self-sacrificing love. What a magnificent destruction of all notions of merely dictatorial rights, of treating the wife like chattel. Lord, you keep her humble and quiet, and I'll keep her pregnant. There's nothing gross like that. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The obvious pastoral application is this. What do you give up for your wife? What sacrifice do you regularly indulge in for her good? Even questions of fidelity. What's for her good? What you do with your time? What brings her delight? Moreover, there are huge bearings in this regard, even in the realm of the sexual. Now, that's not something I have the time to explore. But one of the things that's very striking about 1 Corinthians 7, where there's much more said about sexual relationships in marriage, one of the things that's very striking about chapter 7 is how many of those things described in that chapter are reciprocal. Where we're told that the husband does not have the right over his own body, but it belongs to his wife and vice versa. So there are many domains in marriage that are meant to be reciprocal. And those you can only find out by carefully reading the word of God. But having said all of that, the question still has to be probed. What does it mean to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Well, it means your love for your wife must be like Christ's in its self-sacrifice. Second, in its goal. It must be like Christ's in its goal. Verses 26, 27, and 28a. What did Christ do? Well, he gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. That is gospel results. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. That's what Christ was doing when he loved her all the way to the cross. And you think, oh, this has gone really theological on me. What does that mean? Well, you can't duck it. 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. In other words, Christ's love for the church that brought along its full measure of self-sacrifice was spectacularly for her good. Now, for the church's good, it meant the church had to be forgiven and cleaned up and regenerated. And the ongoing work of the gospel in our lives means sanctification and growing conformity to Christ until finally, on the last day, we're presented to Christ without wrinkle, blameless, absolutely perfect. Do do, do you see So in other words, the self-sacrifice that brings them to the cross has as its aim a certain goal, a goal of completion, perfection, her good. And Paul does not hesitate then to press that home and say, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies for their good. Now, the way that will work out in individual marriages and homes and families and cultures can vary enormously, of course. What it might mean, for example, is that you make sure you stay home a couple of nights 
look after the kids and change the diapers and do the supervision of the kids uh, homework and all of that so that she can go out and take a course and go to a Bible study and pursue, um, pursue something further in the, the local university or a, a, a handcraft unit or, or, or whatever and, and there are some women that need more of that sort of outlet than others but you're not asking what's the least that I can get away with what you're asking is what's best for her that just changes the entire conversation doesn't it Not least is this the case where there are ministers who can always excuse themselves for being away from home because it's the ministry. It's one more, it's one more, it's one more. In fact, they can be so much more going away to the next meeting, the next meeting, the next meeting that the little wife at home with the little children at home actually never get to any of the means of grace. There's something ugly about that somewhere because you want what's good for her. Not only so, but this will inevitably mean spiritual leadership. If, if the analogy is with Christ and the church, Christ loves the church for the church's good, and that is to make the church pure and holy on, on this massive moral spiritual axis. So, so likewise, if we're seeking our wife's good, it's going to mean more than simply she gets a night off. Well, that, that's good that she gets a night off. Yeah, fine, fine, fine. But when do you pray for your wife? When do you pray with your wife? Are you concerned for her total well-being so that as the head of the wife now, you're not simply insisting on your rights so that you can go surfing. But, but, but as the head of the wife, you... you, you you are asking what will foster her spiritual growth? Are there books that would help her? Is there a group she should join? Is there something that she and I could do together to foster and encourage our, our prayer life together? Is, is praying with the children something that she does and I never do? How is that leadership? All you're doing is teaching your children that praying is for women and children. That's all you're doing. For much of my ministry, I've been away from home more than I like to admit. But all the years when our kids were growing up, when I was at home, I led family devotions. I supervised their homework. I prayed with them at night because I did not want them to think that Jesus and praying and Bible reading is relegated to the children and the mummies. It's a manly thing. And unless you are exercising your responsibilities of leadership this way, you are abdicating what it means as a man to lead your wife and love her as Christ loves the church. Do you see? Moreover, surprisingly... Your love for your wife must be modeled on Christ's love for the church in its self-interest. Th that is really striking, but it's what the text says. 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. 
for we are members of his body. In other words, self-love is not here commanded, it's presupposed. But granted that it's presupposed, Christ so identifies with the church that what you do to the church, you're doing for him. When Saul of Tarsus is heading to Damascus on the Damascus road to persecute the church, and Jesus suddenly appears to him in this spectacular vision, he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, why are you persecuting the church? Because Jesus so identifies the church that if you are persecuting the church, you're persecuting him. So likewise, when he is doing good to the church, then he is doing good for his body, the church. And likewise, marriage is seen as such a spectacular intimacy, a oneness, not just a casual sexual link, but a oneness a physical oneness that is undoubtedly encapsulated in sex. But it's bigger than that. So that when you're doing good to your wife, you're also doing good to yourself. It's only the most amazingly blind selfishness that fails to see that. And in fact, those of you who've been married for 30, 40, 50 years, I'm sure that you start looking back and you start saying, Everything that I've done to build her up has meant that our union has become closer and more intimate. It's become more wonderful. What happens to her happens to me. What happens to me happens to her. There is a kind of unity. You no longer think she and I separately, but she and I as one. Do do, do, do you see? That's what you're working toward, a kind of intimacy that is, is finding it increasingly difficult to think in polar opposites. Well, if she gets that, then I want that but is thinking much more in terms of us and we. This does not mean that you obliterate all distinctions. Of of course, there are still distinctions between Christ and the church. But his love for the church is such that when he is doing something for the good of the church, he's doing something for his bride. And his bride is, in one sense, his body. He's doing something that is part of building up this oneness that he has between Christ and his own people. And similarly for husbands who have this massive view of what marriage should look like. One more step. Christ's love for the church then must be your model also in its... Sorry to throw a theological expression at you. I don't know how else to say this. In its typological fulfillment. There, I've said it. What I mean by this is that what we see in the Old Testament of... Yahweh and Israel being a sort of, sort of model of marriage and in the New Testament Christ and the church being a sort of model and marriage that is such a big theme in the Bible that there are a lot of things that get tied around it and it is such a big theme in Paul's mind that he's almost tripping over himself going back from one to the other until you're not quite sure which one he's talking about so verse 31 he quotes Genesis For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Okay, at last we're talking about marriage. Great, great, great. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wait, 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 wait. I thought you were talking about marriage. And earlier on, when he's talking about Christ and the church, and how he's trying to present himself 
present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Oh, he's talking theology there. He's talking ecclesiology. He's talking, he's talking theological shop in the same way husbands ought to love their wives. He's talking marriage. They keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In other words, in the Bible, every single Christian wedding and marriage is supposed to represent in some way a picture of Christ in the church. So that you can't think long about your marriage without thinking about Christ in the church. And, and so that you can't think long about Christ in the church without thinking about what a Christian home looks like. That's the way Paul looks at this. They're, they're so tied up together, you can't pull them entirely apart. That's why, for example, apostasy, turning away from God, is regularly portrayed as a kind of spiritual adultery, as early as Deuteronomy. And that gets picked up again and again and again in the Old Testament into some passages of barbaric grossness, like Ezekiel 16. Don't, don't read it now, but when, when you're back in your room and you're not afraid to blush, go and read Ezekiel 16 and, and, and 23. You want to see what apostasy looks like in terms of gross sexual evil? But the reason why the Bible can use language like that is because as far as God is concerned, turning away from him apostasy is, well, the only human analogy that's suitable is, is, is like busting up a marriage. It's like infidelity. It's, it's, it's like betrayal. It's, it's sexual grossness. Only it's happening in the spiritual front. Don't, don't you see? That's why the prophecy of Hosea is so powerful. Where... Where, where, where Christ's people are, 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 are like a prostitute that, that just can't get enough. She's got to go out and get more and more and more and more. And God comes in and says, but I love you anyway. I'm still coming after you. Do, do, do you see? All of those sorts of images in the Bible are still bound up with this massive vision of God and his people being the only appropriate model for a husband and his wife. Now, I know that that can all seem theologically airy-fairy. These big vision things can stimulate us in a conference, but what does it mean when you get home this afternoon? In some ways, you know, those are the kinds of things that need to be worked out when men get together. It'll look different in different families. It'll look different depending on how much education you've had or what your priorities are, how many children you are, stages of life, uh, whether there are any children at home. But the motivations don't change. We love our wives as Christ loved the church with his self-sacrifice for her good, bearing in mind this massive typological reflection of God himself. But let me offer one or two practical suggestions, at least. Number one, tragedy occurs when each side attempts to lecture the other on the other's responsibilities. Hey, the Bible says submit, so submit and shut up. Number two, 
Each side can make the other's responsibility infinitely easier by discharging its own responsibilities. Most wives that I know would be much happier to submit to their husbands if their husbands began to approach loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And most husbands would find it a little easier to exercise leadership and a self-sacrificial love if their, husband, if their wives were genuinely responsive, submissive, and loving. And, and often this, this turns on the smallest of things, compliments, encouragement. We men have frail egos. We like for our wives to think that we're pretty good at something or other, fixing the washing machine, sorting out the income tax, whatever. But likewise, they have their own frail egos too. They're not sure they're attractive anymore. When was the last time you called her gorgeous? Do you know what the greatest aphrodisiac is in a long marriage? Oh, I don't have a biblical text for this. This is Carson spouting off. <laughs> the greatest aphrodisiac in a long marriage is kindness. Time together, even doing something you might not like to do, like shopping. Well, I have many more of these practical points, but it's time for lunch. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, we know intuitively as we hear your most holy word on these matters that your word is right and good. This truly is your good design. Give us wisdom and resolve to embrace it thoroughly and to find out from more experienced men how best to put it in practice, to talk things up in the context of our own churches and in our homes so that our marriages may reflect something of the spectacular unity of Christ and the church. For Jesus' sake, amen.